I'm Sarah Samwell. This is Policy Talk. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show about policy analysis and international affairs. On March 25th, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University hosted former Minister of Foreign Affairs Lloyd Axworthy for a conversation on how COVID-19 climate change and rising nationalism are changing Canadian foreign policy. In this special episode, we bring you excerpts from that event. You'll also hear from Rebecca Thiessen, professor at the School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa, and Richard Nemajin, professor at the School of Indigenous and Canadian Studies at Carleton University. The event was moderated by Dr. David Carment, professor at Carleton University and editor of the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal. Well, uh, thank you very much, David, and thank you for all the uh, sponsors, uh, particularly the students at Norman Patterson and High Affairs and others. It's, uh, it's nice to be back in the classroom, even though it's Zoomed and digitized, and uh, I hope uh, it still has that same kind of wavelength of uh, conversation that uh, is so important. Uh, David, your opening comments about those uh, good old bad days in the 90s when I was in foreign affairs, it reminded me of a, of a story I used to tell the incoming class of uh, Embroy Foreign Service officers who were all bright and bushy tailed, ready to take on the world. And I explained to them that. Uh, uh, they were very fortunate that they had made the cut because when I had applied uh, way back uh, in the ancient years of the 60s, uh, I didn't make the cut. I, I didn't get past the first uh, sort of uh, threshold. So I said it was forced me into a life of politics in order to work my way up uh, to foreign affairs. But I, I want to say this historically, I guess my interest uh, was inspired by another I think the foreign minister of Canada, Lester Pearson, uh, when I was a high school student in North, North End Winnipeg, uh, not particularly engaged with the, the affairs of the world, but our history professor, wonderful guy named JJ Phillips said, look, uh, uh, you have to go down to a meeting at the old Winnipeg Convention Center uh, to hear a political guy. And I said, well, you know, I got better things to do. And he said, well, then you're just, subtracted 25% of your mark. So I immediately changed my mind. And I had, I'm really glad it was one of those juncture moments, one of those sort of epiphanies that you have. Listening to Mike Pearson, just several months after he'd won the Nobel Prize, he convinced me of a couple of things. One, that uh, uh, political life itself was a public service and it needed people who were prepared to engage on the, you know, on the front lines and on the streets to be able to get people's opinion, listen to their concerns, and to translate that into action, to policy, to initiatives. And maybe uh, the backstop to that was he said, that in Canada, we have a, a special uh, vocation, uh, not that we're exceptional, but that uh, we understand and have understood from the, the day the Second World War ended, that our best interest, our enlightened self-interest, is being a full participant and contributor to a collaborative, cooperative international order. Uh, we were called a middle power at the time, 
And Mr. Pearson used that expression. He said, you know, we, we've got all kinds of talent. We've got an incredibly sort of uh, uh, educated population. We're, we're well-to-do. We've got uh, access. We've got lots of geography. Uh, and what we have acquired over time is a sense of, of, a, of a mission. And that's not a crusade. That simply means things that we need to do. I re raise that because oftentimes you hear today people, well, there's a lot of skeptics and a lot of uh, sort of uh, recent analysts who say, oh, the Pearsonian years uh, are over. Well, they're not. Uh, because I think that basic gem of uh, commitment uh, that Mike Pearson talked about on that stage uh, way back when in downtown Winnipeg, said that uh, working with others, being a partner, being in a network, being in an institution, those are the things that provide stability. Those are the things that enable smaller, middle-sized countries to protect their interests and even to acquire some independent role. If you simply turn it over uh, to the back alley, then the, the bullies are going to occupy it. And I raise that partly because I think that's still a basic axiom that we need to, to uh, foster and understand. But even more importantly, we're at a juncture in our own history right now uh, where that awakening is a, is a way of going back to that basic principle, but now figuring out what are the navigation routes to get there. Uh, 2020 was an awakening year. Uh, it wasn't just the epidemic. God knows that was uh, a big enough sort of shift in the tectonic plates. But along with it was coming the increasing signs of the volatility of, of climate that was just changing every single kind of category of behavior. Um, as uh, David or Zaid mentioned, I'm chair of the World uh, Refugee Migration Council. And we're not talking about millions of people being displaced by famine, by hunger, by thirst, by conflict, and all these things interlaced. They're not sort of separate silos, they're all interconnected and they affect one another. So the degree to which food security is a crucial issue that Canada has a role to play because we are an agricultural powerhouse, it also means that that's one way of ensuring a higher level of order, stability, security, uh, not just for lots of other people, but for ourselves. And that's why I think it's really important that uh, in this age of uh, sort of turnover and turnout, uh, we, we have to decide and make choices about where we're gonna go. And uh, I take you back for a moment to the concept of the black swan that uh, uh, Jacob Tabb talked about in 2007. He said, it's an event that is just so overpoweringly different that it completely obliterates all the conventional wisdoms and the known routines and the normal practices. You have to go back and reset. And that's, I think, what we're into now, that confluence of, of the climate, epidemics, the ongoing sort of uh, threat of virus and epidemics, to say nothing of the increasing, uh, I think, uh, uh, validity and uh, relevance of an, an, an emerging nuclear arms race, uh, that the uh, Major nuclear powers are rearming, re-weaponizing with very new technologies, and the wannabes are trying to catch up. In the meantime, we've shredded most of the arms control issues that we have. And so as a result, we're facing uh, uh, that kind of landscape where navigation is no longer being done by GPS 
There's no kind of you know, set routine. I think it's going to require what the uh, so the, the Tahitians call wayfaring navigation, that you listen to the currents and watch the birds and go back to your history and try to get a sense of, of how you sort of uh, jag and jag uh, in order to get your way around the, the reefs and the shoals, but at the same time, uh, take you to your mission. It was a wonderful story uh, about how uh, in the 18th century, a group of Tahitian explorers traveled 2,700 miles from the Polynesians to, to Hawaii without a compass, uh, without a sensor, without a GPS. Uh, they, they used their best intelligence to be able to adapt and uh, be more spontaneous, a little bit more reactive, but not simply in the, in the question of, of panic, but with a set notion of where they wanted to go and how to get there. So that's the other part of the navigation role we play. A third thing I want to point out, because it's, a, it's an important element I try to make in the uh, article in the, uh, the book that David mentioned. Uh, look, I was, as a state expert, I was a, a street politician for oh, 28 years, both at the provincial and federal level. I mean, I got reelected. And by the way, if you're a liberal in Western Canada, getting a liberal um, uh, seat is not exactly what you call a giveaway. Uh, you have to be street smart to get there. And I, I survived for those years. But I learned a lot of tricks of the trade of how to work, how to work with uh, uh, varieties of different uh, interest groups, NGOs, church groups, unions, uh, but always with the view of saying that uh, I'm there to understand and to use the parliamentary system to make it work for you. I mention that because right now we're at a time when there's a lot of uh, cracks beginning to show in our democratic systems. Uh, the impact, the uh, powerful uh, mobilization of grievance that social media has been able to uh, foster and power uh, is something that is clearly creating enormous challenge to our democratic institutions. So come, you know, our parliamentary institutions go back uh, to the English parliaments uh, of the 16th century. Uh, and we made some adaptations, but uh, uh, the bold promise of reform that was in the 2015 election to really review how our parliamentary democracy works in terms of its diversity, its representation, its effectiveness, and its ability to provide oversight, I think is under challenge. Uh, it's interesting, uh, friends I still have in the party, uh, a couple of members of parliament, some ministers, uh, they're all at home like you are today, or most of us, plugged in on, into a digital uh, medium. Uh, how do we begin to take that connectivity that we're all really learning kind of in a, in a forced draft uh, to apply it to the, the issue of policy and decisions and choices that we have to make as a democratic people? And I think that there's some major issues there. I think the political parties have uh, weakened in their ability to influence international affairs and international goals and objectives. There's certainly been a major shrinkage in the uh, openness and transparency uh, that there has been increasingly the uh, opportunity 
that has been provided through the epidemic, as we've seen in its rapid development of major vaccines, to demonstrate the incredible value uh, working and collaborative together on a global basis. But on the other side of the ledger, we're also watching the uh, nastiness of the vaccine diplomacies, where the big guys who happen to have manufacturing capacity are beginning to push and pull their ways around and really to undermine or erode so many of the collaborative institutions that were established post-World War II and reformed beyond that. I think probably the biggest casualty is the United Nations. Uh, it was clearly the, the beacon on the hill when it was first established in 1945. And I think we, we all know Canada's major history in the creation of the United Nations, both particularly in the human rights area. Uh, but over time, it's been, I guess, like an old ship, it gets barnacles on it. It begins to get rusted. And I think the leadership of the UN for the last uh, several decades has not been particularly strong. I think you know, I don't want to you know, kind of go back to old times. I think the, the last really good secretary general uh, was Kofi Annan. And since then, we've got secretary generals who cut their cloth according to how the big powers uh, want to suit themselves. And as a result, the United Nations capacity in dealing with, say, the vaccine issue right now uh, and the way in which the program they set up, the COVAX program, is basically being bypassed and undermined and, and uh, in many ways corrupted, uh, demonstrates that lack of leadership. It's also true for other multilateral institutions. I mean, some are doing well. Uh, I think the African Union seems to be uh, showing a real activism. Uh, I would say the, the Commonwealth to which uh, Harry and Meghan have just left uh, is basically a hollow shell, doesn't do anything anymore. Uh, the so-called uh, G7s and G20s showcases for great symmetry of leadership hasn't much to show in the last several meetings. It, it's, the communiques are drafted three months in advance, as we saw particularly in the Trump years. It's been a real uh, effort just to show up at the meetings. So I, what I'm saying is I think all those things in which we premised and predicated our, our understanding of how Canada can play an effective role uh, as a global middle power, but one that can also and maintain its independence. And uh, it, that takes me to what may not be a, a broadly shared uh, uh, concern, but I guess going back to my early days in the 60s, where I've always been suspicious of certain things, I, I think it's been wonderful that Mr. Trump has left the scene and that uh, Joe Biden uh, as president and the people he's appointed are replacing them. However, that does not mean that we simply have to become a, an accomplice in what they do. And I think clearly the area where that's really showing some uh, real uh, strain and stress in its relations with Asia and particularly with China. Uh, we have our own reasons and we're gonna probably discuss it as we go through this session about what to do with China. But what has happened is we've handcuffed ourselves. We're no longer able to play a, 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 a something of a defining role that really is tailored to our outlook and our values and where we want to go. And so I think the importance of maintaining that sense of 
uh, that Mike Pearson talked about way back in 1957 when I was you know, a senior in high school. Said, hey, but things have got to change, and we have to be really careful that we maintain our our ability to make our choices. And that doesn't mean to make our choices confrontational. It means making choices to provide for a higher level of cooperation and uh, collaboration. And that is going to require uh, not only uh, a rethink. I mean, I think, for example, uh, our, our real drop-off in crucial areas like human rights around the world, uh, we're not a, we're not a, a voice in, in those debates anymore. Uh, we have not showed up at the nuclear uh, treaty discussions for a ban on nuclear weapons. Canada was the first non-nuclear country. We had all the ability to build a bomb. We decided not to do it. That gives us a certain moral uh, perch. But we didn't even show up the nuclear discussions. Uh, and you're saying, I get, there's a bunch of people going around, you know, the old comic, where's Waldo? I think, where's Canada on these issues? And I think that's really, I give credit for what the government's done on uh, women and girls and providing a more feminist approach. But even there, I think we have to be really careful in, uh, uh, I, I'm understanding, I just got a note from Richard that I'm uh, going overtime. I mean, have you ever tried to constrain an ex-academic, ex-politician, uh, ex-university uh, president and, and uh, uh, Winnipeg gab about to 15 minutes to say what they're going to say? Anyway, that's what I want to allow to. I, I think that we've got some real calculations to make. The places it, it has to happen is in the universities, in your classes. That's where the fresh thinking leads. That's where the challenge to the conventional wisdom have to come. And so I'm encouraging you maybe through this session and hopefully reading the book that uh, Richard and David have put together, uh, we'll get a little bit of a, of a launching pad to get into that kind of discussion. So once again, thanks for the opportunity and uh, I look forward to the comments of my fellow panelists. Thank you, uh, all three panelists, uh, terrific insights and lots of room for discussion. Uh, my job as moderators to sort of prod and poke you a bit on each of your points, but we can't obviously do all that in 20 minutes or so. So I'd like to pick up on two or three key themes that sort of uh, crossed all three presentations. One was the importance of democracy and foreign policy. This is something that emerged uh, early on in the uh, uh, the uh, discussion with respect to the importance of public diplomacy, for example. Uh, concretely, uh, you know, this is this is a, an, an idea that has resonated with liberal governments since at least uh, the 1960s, the 70s, the importance of civil society inputs, marshalling uh, civil society, not only as in an organizational capacity, but also the intellectual capacity, bringing uh, individuals within the epistemic communities into the policy making and even the policy deliberation process. Coming from a school of international affairs, we pride ourselves on the opportunities to have policymakers contribute to not only our teaching, but also our uh, commentaries and the opportunities for them to provide insights to a general audience like we're doing today is something that I think is absolutely central for any, any uh, university to, 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 to consider if they're going to have an impact on foreign policy. Unfortunately, what we've seen is, um, a, if you will, a concentration of decision-making within cabinet. We've seen um, 
some uh, erosion of the democratic process and, if you will, policymaking by polling uh, in which the lowest common denominator seems to be whether an idea will float with the Canadian public. This tends to generate a risk averse approach to foreign policy, tends to negate or reduce the potential for risk uh, risk acceptance, uh, but much of what Canada has prided itself on is exactly that, taking risks, obviously uh, to the irritation of some of our allies, but also to those we are trying to support. We're trying to build uh, communities outside of Canada, and we can only do so if we have that necessary presence abroad, whether that's a civil society capacity or edu educational capacity. So I'm wondering if each of you uh, my first point is really about the importance of public diplomacy and the engagement of not just the selling of policy to Canadians, but the engagement of Canadians in the policy process. Uh, I'll turn it over to Lloyd if you can comment briefly on your experience as uh, your experience as a foreign minister in which you introduced uh, the public diplomacy initiative. It was a huge part of the Liberal government back then, but also we've seen it play out in a number of different ways. Well, first, let me endorse, I think, what Richard said about the real importance and what Rebecca said of people participating. I mean, diplomacy is not simply for the striped pants crowd. I mean, it's got to be really rooted, especially in this day and age, in a much stronger base of partnerships at the local level in particular where you get people discussing and debating. Uh, and I think one of the uh, drawbacks is that our political parties, all of them, including uh, the one that I belong to, uh, in latter years has not paid a lot of attention to that. And it really begins with the fact that I don't think right now, if I can be, you know, from my uh, sanctuary abode in uh, uh, Western Canada, I don't think Ottawa, the Canal Way, pays enough attention the global matters these days. Uh, I think it's, uh, if you look at the restrictions on budgets, uh, the shrinking of our foreign service, uh, the cancellation of the Radio Canada International, the Canadian students uh, overseas programs, and the kind of things that Rebecca made in terms of involving uh, sort of women and girls in direct participation to talk about the things they face in the COVID era. Uh, these are all areas in which I think we have a, a, a really important task to uh, really open up the system and put some juice into it. Uh, and I, I would say that uh, it does start with a really serious effort at parliamentary reform. It's the toughest thing to do, because if you're a governing party, you don't like to change what brought you in. But if you don't, one of those days you're not going to be the governing party. Uh, and in the meantime, there's a lot of people who don't feel represented. And that is also true of our federal system, as uh, Professor Don Savoy from New Brunswick has always talked about. There's no mechanism in the uh, federal level of government for regions to be represented. So we rely upon the provinces, and the provinces have their own political systems. And as a result, you know, it's a built-in system of confrontation. And thirdly, where I think is a major problem is uh, we've really cut back a lot on uh, the creation of ideas, of knowledge, of evidence. Uh, we used to have a little uh, operation in foreign affairs uh, where Steve Lee had a, a small team that could go and engage Canadians. If I wanted to know what we should do about nuclear weapons or talk about what we do in Moldova, 
uh, we would find Steve was able to engage, uh, get people to participate, to speak. And I think uh, to me, that was an enormous value uh, added in terms of information. And finally, the other thing is that we, you know, one of the most popular programs we had, which is brought in 1977 by Bud Cullen, who was then the uh, Minister of Immigration, was the private sponsorship of refugees and migrants. And I, and I gotta tell you, uh, it has done more to uh, help buttress and, and amplify Canadians' positive view towards uh, strangers at the gate. But now its program has basically been shut down uh, because of COVID and all the other border things. It's one of the casualties uh, that we kind of keep, we're drawing up the, the, the bridges around the wall and uh, shutting down so the, the, the transfers. I think that that is, uh, if you ask me right now where I would put my emphasis, it would be to say, who out there politically is gonna talk about the need for a fully participatory democracy in a way that makes sense in the digital age through the connectivity that we're practicing here this afternoon. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'll turn it over to uh, Rebecca, just to comment briefly. You did raise the importance of public diplomacy and volunteerism, and I, uh, maybe you could sharpen that a bit for us. What's, what's at stake yeah. here and what needs to be done? One thing that I wanted to pick up on is this idea of digital diplomacy and the importance that this has played in the last um, 12 months or so, uh, the impact that that might have. So I think it's worth further exploring um, how digital diplomacy has played out over the last year, uh, particularly for more official or formal diplomacy. But one of the things that you know is, I think is really important for us to not lose sight of is a distinction to be made between problematic volunteerism programs, which we know, you know, don't deepen those connections in, in very meaningful ways, and really strong international volunteer programs where uh, volunteers often spend one, two, five years uh, having meaningful connections with community members and, and the significance of that. Uh, in the context of the digital diplomacy, though, I think this really has a, an important contribution to make to accountability. Um, we're not spending $30 on orange juice when traveling, when, when we're engaged in digital diplomacy. And I think that this is important for the Canadians uh, in terms of, of uh, good use of our money. So I think that's something to explore. I think it's something maybe for us to seize as an opportunity moving forward. I, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, Richard, brief comment, uh, or do you wanna build on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll speak a bit more to, to Canadian studies, which is where where I'm based, and it, you, you know, and it's not about partisan politics, uh, but when the Understanding Canada program was terminated, uh, and many people across the world wrote about it, it displayed a real short-sightedness in terms of the impact it had, um, not even just on the financial side or good spending or not. I mean, people did economic impact analyses showing that it made a lot of money for Canada, but, but there was a point where former minister Baird uh, around the same time that he terminated the program complained in a speech that people didn't know enough about Canada. Yet he uh, terminated the program called Understanding Canada. And 
there, I don't know why that decision was made, but for me as a Canadianist, it displayed a real short-sightedness in terms of understanding what Canadian studies in Canada and abroad can do in terms of public diplomacy as, as people like Evan Potter and others have written. Um, being in Europe right now, it's amazing how American studies is so much more prominent, even though we have so many connections between Canada and Europe. In the university system, uh, it's gone. The, the American embassies are quite active. Um, and international Canadian studies scholars aren't interested in debates necessarily about identity. They find Canada interesting and they tell their students that Canada is interesting and that's the mind space of public diplomacy. So it's, you, you, you know, uh, and even to go back to the 70s, the Simons report about, you know, the, the study of Canada noted that Canadian studies was really important, not because of patriotism or identity, but because it connected Canadian knowledge to a global body of knowledge. And that uh, it helped others learn about Canada. And so it promoted engagement. So that's why I think public diplomacy, at least in terms of academic, uh, the academic side is really, really important. And we have people like Nick Nanos and Margaret Atwood advocating Margaret McMillan, who was an Ipsia speaker, and yet the government doesn't hear or understand the need for it, which is puzzling for, you know, given that Canada was supposed to be back. Well, beyond the academic uh, impact, there's, there's clearly a, a delinking, if you will, of, uh, of Canada from the local NGO capacity that had been developed over 20 years from the post-Cold War era up until around 2003-2004. And that means a loss of presence abroad uh, for those people who understand, but also can interpret can complex ideas to, to local, to local uh, practitioners. Take something as complex as a responsibility to protect or human security. These are not easily unwrapped ideas, but they need interpretation in a local context. Uh, and they need to, they need to interpretation in the local language, the vernacular, and we've lost that capacity. I want to turn very briefly in the time remaining in this, uh, in this brief roundtable to comment on something that was quite striking. Lloyd, you mentioned uh, that neither the G7 or G20 are offering the kind of institutional focus and capacity to meet Canadian needs. Now, I know you didn't quite frame it that way, but it is striking quite frankly, if you observe the, these annual meetings, how little they resonate uh, globally, but also more importantly, how divided they are. They are, as you say, uh, in many ways, pre-cooked outcomes. And many, many of these platforms are used to advance ideas that are intended to isolate one or more countries. In the past, it was Donald Trump. Occasionally, it's, it's other countries that are, are not formally part of the G7, but are part of the G20. So can you speak very briefly to what we need to do if we're going to remain flexible and nimble, which is probably the hallmark of uh, Canada's future foreign policy, what needs to be done? I wanna go back to something that Rebecca said, that the whole issue 
of uh, becoming engaged in a digital world is opening up all kinds of new opportunities. And we're just really at the, at the early embryo stage of understanding of what you could do with this. And yet here, here we are in a year, as, as uh, she promptly pointed out, we've discovered a whole new Zoom civilization. Now it's not perfect, but I've got to tell you in terms of reaching out, let me give you one example. Uh, three or four months ago, uh, we were partners with a what is called a girl group, G-I-R-W, uh, Global Independent uh, Refugee Women and Girls. We had hundreds of women who were in the camps, in the communities, being able to talk about their experience with COVID. And uh, the, the powerful message that came out was the site that they feel that they're at the back of the queue when it ever comes to medicines or vaccines or anything else. Actually, that was the good days. Right now, they're not even in the queue. They're not even being listened to. But there was an opportunity to really talk about some form of democracy. And so rather than spending uh, lots of millions on another showcase, and I, there's nothing wrong with summits except they become Commedia dell'arte after all. Everybody has a, a role they play and they get in their own costume. Uh, and there are some benefits you know, over dinner and drinks, but basically because of the divisions, uh, now China, United States, Russia, uh, Europe, uh, they simply don't work anymore. And I think, let's go back to the network idea and let's start using it to really try to engage at a much lower level of direct involvement of people. And that's where I think you'll get real change coming from. Okay, perfect. Uh, what we're going to do at this point, uh, recognizing our limitations on time, there's obviously a lot we could, a lot more we can discuss. And I just want to inform our audience that we plan more uh, roundtables like this in the near future. So rest assured, if we don't get everything discussed today, we will later on. Um, there's obviously a, a number of questions from the audience that we, we could take. I think the most obvious one uh, is the question of quiet diplomacy and China's relationship with Canada currently. Um, it is a question that seems to trouble us immensely every day in Canada's national newspaper. We're, we're confronted with yet another bad thing China has done. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we seem helpless to respond, which I don't think is entirely true. But nevertheless, there is this question of uh, what next on, on the Canada-China agenda, specifically whether or not quiet diplomacy is proving to be the effective instrument that we had hoped it would be. Uh, Lloyd, and then I'll turn it over to uh, Richard and, and Rebecca as, as, as needed. Well, there's lots of metaphors I could use. Uh... Let me start out with the tar baby, where you just get stuck onto one thing and you can't extricate yourself. Uh, and the other is a Gordian knot. I mean, we've wound ourselves into a position in which we've uh, unfortunately, sadly, have handcuffed our ability to deal with the China issue in a forthright, tough, smart way, because uh, you've got two uh, Michaels and their families, you know, uh, depending on every nuance and every whim. And therefore, you don't want to trip wires uh, with uh, Mr. Chi. Uh, I think that uh, the time to change that was uh, first not get into it. And, and here's one of the fallacies. Yeah, and I, we've talked as if somehow uh, dealing with a hostage issue is some kind of horrible sort of moral issue. 
No, it's a dipl diplomatic negotiation issue. And I was part of many of them. Our party, our, our head of uh, protocol has written about it. Uh, the Americans uh, have dealt with all kinds of hostage exchanges and paying and so on of this kind. But we all of a sudden decided that we as Canadians uh, wouldn't do that anymore. I don't get it. I don't know where that came from. Uh, I, I certainly didn't come from uh, sort of the professional foreign service officers I work with, because they were, you know, I mean, uh, uh, the ones I worked with were very pragmatic. And I'm going to tell you this, uh, the, my mandate letter as a minister, the opening line was my responsibility was to protect Canadians abroad. And I think that that is uh, another, something that has to be brought forward. But right now, uh, China is moving in on, on so many of our uh, crucial areas. They're trying to take over the United Nations so that sovereignty becomes its only base or premise of action. They're moving into the Arctic. They're moving uh, into the vaccine health areas. I mean, they're building networks. Uh, as Tom Freeman said in the New York Times the other day, they're laughing at us because we're simply not being swift or smart. And I think our ability to play in that is because right now uh, we, are, we are so gnarled and so constrained. Uh, I could use another word that's not a family word, but uh, we're not being able to play an effective role at a time when this whole China-US competition issue uh, doesn't require slogans or bromides. It re really requires some very smart maneuvering. Okay, thank you. Uh, I have now a question oh, uh, for, I, I would for just say, oh, Richard, did you want to come? Yeah. yeah just very quickly, and, and it, it's it, David and I have written about this. Uh, uh, we had an article called the China-US right. conundrum, uh, where we, we sort of lay out the challenges for thinking about Canadian sovereignty and what a, it was more a question for Lloyd to follow up is you know on the one hand we have the opposition uh, that seems intent on trying to embarrass the government uh, with the genocide motion. Uh, Dale Smith on Open Canada said it shows that Canadian politicians aren't serious about foreign policy. Mm -hmm. You know in other words it was posturing yet you call for Parliament to be more engaged uh, in uh, in foreign policy. So how could we have Parliament have a good debate about what to do with China and maybe what to do with the United States without betraying any leverage or, you know, some of it's obviously very secret. We, we don't know everything, but what role could Parliament play in talking about this? Well, I, I think the most of uh, my uh, plugged or unplugged, yes. I think the most important thing Parliament could do was to be provide a venue, a vehicle for alternative views to be heard and expressed. Um, one of the most important things that happened when I was foreign minister is that Bill Graham was chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee and did a major review of our nuclear policy. I, it became the basis of what we did from that point on. But right now, I mean, they're, they're constrained by the being you know, home consumed, but the reality is there's a lot of views out there that aren't being heard. And I think that uh, Parliament has a right, but not to get into swagging. I mean, you're right, the, as I said, bromides and slogans are not policy, they're posturing. And I think that uh, 
we don't want to get ourselves trapped into what is so often the political game, uh, which is find find me somebody that I can point to and blame. Uh, there's no question that China is not a very nice player. Like they're pretty bad, but we built built with bad states before, and we better learn about how to do it far more skillfully than we're doing right now. And Parliament can provide the lead in that, but with the right composition of having members from all the parties come together and work together on it, as opposed to uh, slinging uh, spitballs across the House of Commons. Thank you. There's a, there are a couple of other questions here I thought I could try and combine to the best of my ability. One, they're both directed to, to Lloyd, but I'm gonna put uh, Rebecca on the spot about Lloyd's comment regarding change beginning in the university classroom. Uh, individuals asking how can classrooms to, to achieve that uh, goal, how can classrooms be made more accessible to a more diverse group of students that is more representative of current Canadian global societies, diversity in terms of race, economic class abilities, as well as gender without, um, and then my building on the, the second question that was asked without trying to engage in this kind of uh, virtue signaling, which seems to be the hallmark of this government, that be more like us, and we will, we you know, you will, you'll be a, a much better nation as a result. Uh, we want to avoid the kind of pulpit diplomacy that we've been accused of before. On the one hand, while at the same time ensuring that we are true to our word about being representative of the population. Uh, that is now uh, emerging in Canada in the last 20 years, an immigrant nation made up largely of diaspora communities, in particular, how we can achieve a more realistic foreign policy in light of the transformative changes with domestically. Uh, Rebecca, do you have any thoughts on, on how we can achieve those goals? So just to speak to the first point, um, uh, coming back to the digital platforms, and I know I know it's been a tough year of teaching for many of us, but for me, it's been one of the best opportunities. Um, I've been able to bring in partner organizations from around the world, organizations that work in you know very rural areas of Kenya, for example, and come into my classroom and to be able to talk about what they're doing and their program priorities and to link with students. So I see, you know, I see that. A lot of opportunities that could continue through COIL, Collaborative Online International Learning, where we have joint classrooms around the world. I think this is an immense opportunity for building public diplomacy at the student level. So really engaging young people in a desire for and a commitment to actually learning with and from other people around the world. To me, that's one of the biggest priorities for creating the kind of engagement we want with Canadians but also having the benefit of, of reaching uh, more broadly because we have so little representation of Canada around the world uh, more formally. Uh, so that's that's one way and I, and um, yeah, so I'll leave it at that. Maybe Richard or, or Lloyd want to answer that second point. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, we have a former university president on the panel uh, who can speak to things, but I would say, you know, a couple of things. Uh, many countries use education, especially post-secondary education, as part of their public diplomacy toolkit. In Canada, we've struggled with that. The EduBrand initiative has, you know, it's caught up in federalism, of course, as well. But there's another issue that Canadian students don't go abroad. 
compared mm. to other students. It's not for whatever reason, it's not in uh, the culture of Canadian universities. Uh, certainly at, at our university, it's something that we have tried to do. Uh, I know my, my former Dean John Osborne is listening and he encouraged faculty to take courses abroad, uh, but it's, it's a challenge. Uh, and, uh, and our students seem to like to stay close to home. The other side, of course, is that uh, the end of Understanding Canada made it pretty well impossible for students abroad to come to Canada without, you know, without having any, you know, a thousand dollars to buy a plane ticket or something. So again, public diplomacy matters. Uh, David, if I could get uh, two quick responses to it. Uh, speaking with my old hat on, uh, where you start providing a response to your question is the universities have to start looking, really looking at their access policy and really realizing that there's not just a money constraint, that's part of it, but there's all kinds of other limitations and thresholds and standards that uh, debilitate against a full participation. Uh, when I was at the University of Winnipeg, we introduced what we call a community learning program, where we basically went out and worked with Indigenous communities and inner city communities, uh, which included a lot of refugee children, uh, to become involved at an early age, seven, eight, and nine, bringing them to the universities, helping them to learn science and geography and English and things of that kind. That was now there's a lot of people, the faculty didn't like that. That was they're saying we're being kindergarten. Well, I'm sorry, uh, many of those students are now graduating from the university, and they do represent that kind of diversity. But there's a lot of sort of uh, uh, rigidity uh, and a lot of uh, hanging on to some old biases. And I was always conscious of that because I was always under pressure to say, why are you spending money on bringing grade seven students from William White to learn science at our university? I should be getting more on my pension plan. Yeah. That's number one. Number two was uh, uh, for Rebecca's interest, we did start what we called, uh, we, we joined an 18 university, worldwide university network on global development. And our university along with one in Australia were the sources of indigenous education. So we were able to bring indigenous students in, not only from our own community, but from around the world. I do it digitally oftentimes, but it was a joint effort to provide a very specific tailored program on how to work in indigenous communities. There's, close to six or 700 indigenous people at last count around the world. And I thought that this is an area that Canada in particular uh, could thrive on. And many universities are starting that, but we're, we've got a long way to go. And I think that the international program that the Richard was talking about in terms of Canadian studies should be taking that same element of how do we use a, a Canadian studies program to begin engaging and involving students in their own locale and with the op option of coming to Canada for graduate work or a summer program or something of that kind. Well, thank you very much for those comments. Uh, very helpful. We're coming to a close uh, before I turn it back to Zaid to uh, close it off for us. But, you know, one of the uh, major themes that was brought up in uh, all three uh, presentations was this idea that Canada has engaged in certain things that are off the radar, but extremely important to be mentioned. Uh, the World Refugee Council, which is looking at a significant increase in the number of 
refugees around the world. Canada is positioning itself as an actor here, but hasn't yet reached that status. Similarly, uh, the question of nuclear arms control, uh, it's not clear where Canada is going to uh, position itself with respect to American policy on nuclear uh, arms. More broadly, what we're seeing is a government that, uh, in fact, a liberal government that seems reluctant to engage in what I would call strategic statecraft, that is guided by some overarching uh, fundamental principles that are demonstrated more through our interests as opposed to our values, not to say that values aren't important, but carefully calibrating Canada's place in the world with respect to our interests. Would any of you be able to comment on whether you think we will see such a document, a foreign policy review? This would be the first liberal government to not have done so, it's in my memory, uh, to conduct any thorough foreign policy review. Lloyd, do you think that something like this will be well, forthcoming? I think, David, they have to get to the election first. I mean, we've had a minority government for almost two years. And being in a minority government is like walking on crushed glass. You're never sure where you're going to uh, wound and harm yourself. So while there's that sort of Damocles over your head, uh, your ability to take bold moves, I think, are limited. Uh, but I think the election could be conducted on a, on a somewhat different basis. I mean, I really believe that uh, Canadians are having a real appetite these days to have their country come out of this epidemic uh, period with not just sort of let's go back uh, to the old ways, but to let's do something that really uh, comes to grips with public health or comes to grips uh, with migration or comes to grips uh, with poverty and inequity. Uh, I, I mean, I think uh, the, the, the party that adopts something uh, to use uh, Joe Biden's uh, to be big and be bold, I think uh, would be the ones that will uh, change, I think, the kind of uh, malaise we're in right now, where the last poll showed that 60% of our Canadians don't find any interest in any of the parties. That's, those are troubling numbers. Uh, Rebecca, yeah. do you have anything you would, would you I'll like to add on that? Yeah, I, just to say that, yeah, I, there's so much more we need to do to be, to be bold in this, but I think Canada's feminist foreign policy in many ways yeah, is a start perfect. towards being yeah. something really bold to really putting a stamp on, on what Canada stands for, um, whether it's you know around rights, human rights in particular, and demonstrating leadership. So while I don't think we're there, I think that the feminist foreign policy really opens a door to getting there. Great, thank you. Perfect. Okay, and, and Richard, over to you. I, I mean, uh, from the perspective of my work on brand politics, I, you know, I would be a bit nervous, you know, uh, when Mr. Axworthy says the ability to make bold moves is, is constrained uh, in the current situation, but, uh, and you can speak to this, David, and your students. I mean, it seems to me that global affairs has been so scaled back and, and really focused on the economic mission and the other parts of statecraft that you talk about have been subsumed into the branding imperative. And so, you know, as you, as you know, uh, Rebecca and, and you and I and a few others talked about what happened after the United Nations Security Council lost, where we lost to countries who did peacekeeping, who did development assistance. Uh, 
Global Affairs has a branding exercise. How do we make the world know about our aid more rather than doing more? And I don't know if our colleague Stephen Brown is, is uh, uh, listening, but Stephen, of course, has been writing a lot about branding and development assistance, brand politics. And it seems to me that in this situation, do we even have the resources to really think about what it is that we're doing? Well, we don't know because we don't really have a budget, do we? Um, <laughs> so, uh, it is an interesting time. We, we are uh, really proceeding on a wing and a prayer. Uh, but it is urgent that Canada place itself in the world, at least so Canadians understand and appreciate what this government intends to do or any government intends to do so we can hold them accountable to the commitments they make, something uh, that is some, something that the Liberals held in high regard with respect for transparency and openness. That is precisely how they came to power uh, mm -hmm. on, the, on the basis of commitments to transparency and openness. So we can only hope that they will reveal their cards at some point. Unfortunately, we need to bring our, our conversation to an end, but as I said, this is the beginning of a process and I hope that we can bring all of you back in some form later on. Mm -hmm. uh, the book, as I mentioned, is uh, due out soon and hopefully there'll be enough interest in obtaining a copy of it, either hard copy or e-copy. At this point, I would like to thank all of our panelists for a terrific discussion. I realize We've only touched upon a uh, few. There's a lot more we can we can do, and maybe we can find different ways to engage in this discussion. This podcast was made possible by the team at iAffairs Canada. To see more of our content, go to iAffairsCanada.com. I'm your host, Sarah Samuel. See you next time.
This podcast was made possible by the team at iAffairs Canada. To see more of our content, go to iAffairsCanada.com. I'm your host, Sarah Samuel. See you next time.